In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory, Glory be, be to, to the, the Father, and, and to the Son, and, and to the Holy Spirit, Spirit as, as it was in the beginning, beginning is now, now and, and will be forever. forever. Amen. Amen. Today we're going to take a look at uh, Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 6. And this is a continuation off of the book of Isaiah. We've had a number of podcasts on Isaiah up to this point in time. So the background should be pretty familiar. Um, based off of when in the book of Isaiah, um, we have sort of this foretaste or, or this taste of what happens before the exile in 722 and what happens after the exile in 722. Now, that exile is specific to Israel, um, not Judah. So Israel is taken captive to Assyria. And then years later, Judah will also be taken captive to Babylon. So chapter 60, which is what we're going to take a look at right uh, for today, that happens in between those two captivities. So after the captivity of Israel, before the captivity of Judah. Isaiah, when he's talking about um, this chapter in, specific, in, in particular, he's already talked about this servant, the servant of Cyrus, who would come and restore um, Judah and Israel. So he would be the one who would bring back the people from Babylon, and this happens even before they're taken into exile for Babylon. So he's talking about this Cyrus way in advance, and so we know that there's this servant. Well, um, in the latter part of the book of Isaiah, it all builds up towards one more servant song. But this isn't a servant song that is just specific towards Cyrus. It's a servant song that is the messianic servant, someone who would be more than just Cyrus and bring back and save Israel and Judah, but this would be the eschatological or the, uh, the, the Christ figure that we know to be Jesus Christ. Now, the structure in the, in the book of Isaiah is very key, and that's one thing I'd like to point out and I th think will be very helpful for us as well in studying it. Um, the book of Isaiah is, is typically broken into three chunks. This uh, chapter 60 occurs in the last chunk. Uh, chapters 56 to 66 is that chunk. And it's um, broken up or structured in what's called a, a, a chiasm. Now, I brought this up uh, maybe once or twice during a, a sermon, and I think I'm going to be um, ever deemed as the vicar of chiasms <laughs> for how much... I bring it up. Well, and I think you've mentioned it obliquely here in our podcast too, but I think it's worth explaining what, what is it? What, what does it mean? What, what, what are the origins of it? What does it have to do with this style of writing? Um, all those things. Yeah. Uh, so chiasm, it comes off of, or the, we get the name off of the Greek alphabet letter chi. And chi looks like an X, 
And it's the, the, the word chiasm comes from the shape of the letter. So if you, if you take just one half of the X, you see, you'll notice that it works its way inwards and then back outwards. Oh, split, split down if you, the middle. Split down the middle, yep. So uh, if, you have, if you just take the left-hand side of the X, you'll notice that it starts on you know, top left and it go, works its way down and to the right, and then it stops at the middle of the X and then it'll work its way down and to the left. Now that kind of is the, is the structure that we're talking about. It gives you a visual of the structure that's going on. And um, what a chiasm is, is you have parallels throughout a, a, a typical literary work. Those parallels begin on the outside of a work and they slowly make their way inward. So it's, if you think of a book, the bookends would be the first page and the last page. That first and last page would mirror each other in some way, some shape. Um, in this case, for example, um, in the book of Isaiah, 56, chapter 56 in verses, or in chapter 66, are both opening and closing poems. So the, the style is the same, but then they both have to do with foreigners coming to Jerusalem to worship. So like both of those are found at um, the, the, the ends of the, the book. And then we, we work our way inwards and we see continual parallels as we work our way inward. And what's unique about a chiasm is that whereas typically like in a story that we have, um, the climax would be typically at the end, I would say. Um, that's kind of where the, the big drama is. That's where we learn the most is the end of the story. Well, in a chiasm, the chiasm is found at the center. It's where, you know, it's where the uh, parallels kind of continue to build up towards. And at the center, there's a pivotal point, and that's kind of the climax of the work. Hebrew, in Hebrew, um, this was a very common form, in part because it's very easy to remember orally. So if, you, if you're trying to memorize something to, to, to speak to, you can imagine how this would be very helpful right. to structure. It's, it's like a mnemonic device to help the, the, the memory along because it's a, it's a very logical structure. Um, and this isn't limited just to Isaiah. It's, it's found multiple places in scripture, these chiastic structures. It is, yes. And we're talking about multiple levels too, because you're, um, at least right now, you're talking about the chiastic structure of these last uh, 10 to 12 books of Isaiah. But it also happens on a smaller level within a, within a passage. And, and that's what you were trying to illustrate. Um, I believe it was your Christmas Day sermon, right? Yes. That, that showed this achiastic structure within uh, the, the passage that we were looking at for that day. That's exactly right, yes. So New Testament, they, they, there are a number of chiasms found in the New Testament, in part because of the, their um, language. Their language would have likely been um, Aramaic, um, which is based off of a lot of 
Hebrew language as well. So the two are, are pretty close to each other. And so like they, they carry that linguistic style, but they also reflected a lot of the language of the Old Testament. So the, the, the authors of the New Testament, when they're writing in Greek, often carried over a lot of those Old Testament characteristics, one of which is being chiasms. Okay, I was going to ask you about that because um, you said it's a Hebrew convention, a literary convention of Hebrew, but yet chi is a Greek letter, correct? That is correct, yes. Yeah, so that's, that's where I, I, I saw a disconnect there. So that's the reason, is because they, they carry that over from the Hebrew. That is correct, okay. yes. Okay. And they, they probably would have had a different name in the Hebrew for it. What that name is, I do not know. Today we just call it a chiasm based right. off of the Greek. Right. And the chi, Greek, the X is easy to remember because we have the chi rho, the symbol for Christ, That's that's got looks like a, a P in an X. Yeah. Exactly right, yeah. yep. Or an yep. R in an X, I, sh I should say. Yeah. Yes, yes. And for the, um, and, and to give a, another, if it was a little hard to follow along for the pattern, another way to put the pattern, which you'll oftentimes see it, is if you start off with content A, and then you move to content B, and then move to content C, as you continue on, then you would retrace your steps. So then at the, towards the end, then you go back to B, content B, and then content A. So it would be A, B, C, B, A. So that's another visual, and that kind of helps like pinpoint it. Now, th th there are different levels, as you pointed out. There can be a, it can be found in just a few verses, or as we have in the book of Isaiah, this actually spans multiple chapters. Mm -hmm. And that, that culminating point uh, so happens to be in, in chapter 61 with the fifth servant song, verses 1 to 3, we are, are at the kind of the nice, close to the servant song, but not quite there, taking a look at chapter 60. But chapter 60, 61, and 62 all serve as sort of the climax of this whole chiastic structure. And we have, um, we have opening, as I mentioned before, with foreigners coming to worship Jerusalem. Then we have uh, this, this chiasm going into um, this ethical righteousness. So I think the, the natural question, if you see, if you see um, foreigners coming to worship Jerusalem, would be, why are they coming to worship in Jerusalem? Is it because of Israel and the, how good the people are? Are they acting righteously? Well, that's the next step in the chiasm, the B section. And that would be a, the answer would be, well, no, actually. Israelites continue to fail at being righteous in their lifestyle. And so that actually, the result would be something like judgment. Okay, so if it wasn't their ethical righteousness, how or uh, how is it that these people, these foreigners, would come to Jerusalem to worship there? Well, then we go, go a little bit farther into the chiasm. And then we get this, this picture of this divine warrior coming and setting things straight. There's judgment based off of what's wrong, but he's also like ushering in what is right, what is righteous. And he is the cause of this, this glory and this gathering together in Jerusalem. 
And it's at that point that we get these last chapters that, that serve as the, the culminating part, which includes the Lord coming and the reversal of the Israel's fortunes. So from this um, kind of uh, being laid waste, they're taken into exile to becoming a flourishing nation once again. So that's a, a lot to be said, but the kind of the culminating or the, the, the key takeaway here is that the chapter that we are looking at is all focused on, is kind of like the, the climax of this, of this chiastic structure. And it's because of the Lord's coming and the Lord's salvation, which he brings, that then carries us out of that chiasm and we see ramifications of this, including, you know, our ethical righteousness that can now be lived out. So that was quite a bit to be said. Um, hopefully I didn't make it too confused about that all. Um, maybe now would be a good time to jump into our text. Would you mind reading that for us, Paul? Sure, from Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather, they come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So one of the first pictures that we get is this um, picture of, of a morning. So there's, there's dawn, um, and there's, there's this light that is coming into the world. It's shining, and um, this, this theme of darkness in light is very big throughout both Isaiah as well as the rest of the Old Testament. And perhaps you can think of a few other examples of light and darkness in the Old Testament, um, for example, beginning with Genesis, we have the creation account where the world was, was dark. And then we have God creating light. So also we have Egypt where there is um, the plague of darkness. So God brings darkness across the land of Egypt. Um, but then we also have this being picked up with Jesus in the New Testament where, and John is really big into this, where Jesus is the light who comes into the world and the world itself is dark. Um, so we have a, have a theme of, of light and that light is heavily connected with God's own presence and his salvation throughout each of these. So uh, when, we think of, when we think of this new light coming forth, um, we can't help but see it as being a new form of creation. 
Just as God created light in the, in the first seven days, so also God is create, bringing a, about a new creation through the act of salvation. And here in the, in, for example, if we take a look at, at Egypt um, for the ten plagues, well, he did bring darkness as one of the plagues. He also gave light to a very specific people, that being in the land of Goshen where the, um, the Israelites were. And it was there that uh, it's there that God's own people were. And so also we can think of it in the historical context here for the Israelites, he provides the Israelites with light because he provides them with the knowledge of how he is going to save them. He, he provides them with the gospel message, which they carry and which they share across all of the world. So the whole world is itself dark, as we're told in verse 2, two um, darkness shall cover the earth. So the whole world is dark, but the people of Israel are given this, this form of light. It is uh, interesting, to, too, to see how um, God's people share somehow in this light. So God is himself the light, but then the people also share in the light. So if we take a look at, at verses 1 and 2, Arise, shine, for your light has come. So it's kind of external to them, right? Your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So it's God's own glory coming up in this light, but it's also falling upon the people. In, at the end of verse 2, But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. So here we have almost this participation of this glory. Somehow, God's own glory, God's own salvation is being shared upon the people. So the people are like participating in it in some way or form. And we well, get except that, that it isn't our doing. We are just the, the passive recipients of this light. And it's kind of like the illustration of God's grace. We, we can't earn it. But, but it's, it's, it's given to us freely. Right, yeah, like, that's a great example because the, when the when sun rises, it just shines on you and, and you just like passively reflect it. Right. And, and, and if you think of like Goshen um, in the land of, of Israel, God shined light onto the people of Goshen, but they weren't the ones who were the source of the light. The source is from God, but everybody can see that the land of Goshen is lit up and that they're in darkness. Jesus actually talks quite a bit about this too, and especially in the, the Gospel of John, when he, when he says that he glorifies the Father by the, doing the will of his Father, namely going and dying on the cross, but then also the Father is glorified by him. So like, the, it goes both ways. He, or the Father glorifies him and he glorifies the Father, but then it goes to one step even further where Jesus is going to be glorified through his disciples. So even like in the, the persecutions and, and things, I think at, at the end of the Gospel of John, he tells, um, I believe it's Peter, that he's going to die, and it's through his death that Jesus is going to be glorified. 
So we, we as like Christians, like almost participate in the glorification of God. But again, it's not something that um, is inherent to ourselves, but it's something that um, God can only give. And that's what it, we, where we get in verse 3, the nation shall come to your light. They're not coming because of their own righteousness. And we got that with the, uh, the chiasm, going back to that chiasm. We already talked about the ethical righteousness as being one of those steps in that chiasm. And the, the people of Israel actually failed at their ethical righteousness. It wasn't because of their ethical righteousness or ethical works that people were flocking to them, but rather it's, it's God who is the one who, who does that. There is, in the, in the latter part, portion, verses 4 to 6, this movement of how Israel is going to be restored. So we're given this picture of Israel's restoration, what it looks like. And it's really quite elaborate because it begins with scattered Israel. All of Israelites are, are scattered abroad, and then here they're coming back together, being like returning to Israel. So there's in verse 4, your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. So this, this gathering together back into Israel of Israel's own people, that's kind of the first step. So that's verse 4. And then we move on to the next step, um, verse 5, where Israel itself is described as being radiant. And then all these other nations begin to flock towards them. So we have those on the sea will, will begin to travel. And then in verse six, those on, on camels shall travel. And we have this picture, this image of all of this wealth of these other nations now being directed into Israel. So there's this restoration that not only includes um, uh, the people themselves, but um, other nations coming in. And the, the direction is significant too. So we're given this picture of both the sea as well as um, those of camels. Well, if you think of like ge geographically where Israel is located, northwest of them is the sea. So they're likely at that time referring to the Phoenician trading center located in the sea and the wealth that is associated with it. And that's northwest direction. Well, southeast direction is Arabia. And so you have all the caravans of Arabia and all the wealth from Arabia and the trading routes from Arabia being entered in and through or coming to Israel. So here we have first from the northwest, now to the southeast. And so there's, there's this picture of the wealth of everywhere is really coming into the land. It's a full restoration. You can probably tell in verse 6 that uh, it, it probably reminds you quite a bit of um, what we're celebrating here in the Christ Christmas season with the, uh, the camels coming. Well, and for this, for this upcoming Sunday, Epiphany specifically. Yes, yeah. Because w w which is the, we read about what? The, 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 the wise men. Well, yes, the, the magi. Yeah. And... It's, it's interesting that here they only mention two of the gifts. We normally say gold and frankincense and myrrh. Here it's only two, it's gold and frankincense, which again is another reminder that, that 
we don't know that there were three wise men. We just assume there were three because there are three gifts. We, we, we don't know that right. for sure. And, and I think there's like some traditions that will hold two, two, three. They'll even give them like names, right? So we have names of the three, um, not found in scripture, but according to the tradition. So whether or not there actually were three, you're exactly right there. That, that's another story. It, it fits so well with Epiphany and the coming of the wise men or the sages because of the location and the point that Isaiah is making. Um, here, we talked about it being at the center of that, that chiastic structure and that center focusing on God's coming, as we saw the light coming into the world, his salvation, and the, the, the reversal of the fortunes of Israel. It's so beautifully described and encapsulated in its entirety with Christ. He's the one who comes into the world with the, with the Magi, especially the Christmas season. That's what we're celebrating. So Jesus coming into the world, God's own presence, that light being God's own presence. And then we also have salvation strongly wrapped into it that will bring the restoration of Israel. And then also, at the end of it, just as we have the bookends, all of these foreigners are coming to, to worship Jesus. Here we have the, the, certainly the, the um, sages from the East coming to worship Jesus. But then with Jesus coming into the world, um, the church opens up to all Gentiles. So Gentiles are beginning to, to rush into the church. He, and from a Christian perspective, certainly Jesus is the, the light that shines forth to all the world and all people come flocking to the church in order to receive that life, that salvation. So it's a beautiful beautiful image of, of what Christ has done. I think we can ask, a, rightly ask, a, when was this all fulfilled? In part, we can say that Cyrus and the restoration of Israel um, with Cyrus, there's, there, there's some credit to it, but that is certainly not the fullness of where Isaiah is coming. In fact, Isaiah already talked about Cyrus earlier on. So most scholars, biblical scholars, will take, when they take a look at it, um, agree that Isaiah is not talking about Cyrus. He's talking about something, very intentionally talking about something more than Cyrus. And of course, as Christians, we would, you know, make the, the next conclusion that Christ is the one who does this, both in his first coming, but then in totality at his second coming. So there's also an eschatological, an end time component to this as well. I think that's a, a, a good place to transition to the, the hymn for this coming Sunday. Would you mind sharing with us the hymn? Well, there's so many great epiphany hymns. It's, it's sometimes hard to choose which one uh, to go with. The one that corresponds most closely to the reading that we were looking at, in this reading from Isaiah, is Arise, Shine, and Splendor. Um, because we've explored that one on some previous year's podcasts, I'm going to pass over that one for this year, even though that's a great hymn and it fits very, very nicely and, and, and succinctly with our Old Testament reading. 
Um, the one that I, that I chose for today, if you have a Lutheran service book, is number 394, Songs of Thankfulness and Praise. Uh, one that I think is, is very recognizable. Uh, you know, when you hear it and you sing it, you just, you just know you're in the epiphany season, kind of like uh, when you're singing Brightest and Best. Uh, I don't know if that's one of your favorite epiphany hymns, but to me that just, that just says it's epiphany when I hear that uh, uh, hymn. Songs of Thankfulness and Praise um, is from a collection, uh, an 1862 collection by Christopher Wordsworth. And like many other hymn authors, he saw a real opportunity to write hymns for the entire church year. This is, this is a pretty common thing where people who like to write hymns think, oh, um, I could write a really good hymn about the theme for this particular Sunday in the church year. And so they, they set themselves to the task of writing one uh, for maybe each theme in the church year, especially if they're also ordained, I've, I've noticed. Because I think pastors, they're just wired to think in, in those ways that, oh, what is the theme of this Sunday in the church year? How can I amplify that? I'm gonna write a hymn just to, just to help me along with that. And so this is from a collection that he published in 1862. Uh, his name, once again, is Christopher Wordsworth. And if that sounds familiar, um, he is the nephew of William Wordsworth, who is the famous uh, romantic English poet. And when you think about it what, a, what a great name for someone who's a poet. My name is Wordsworth. Um, <laughs> it's like when I run across the name of, of, of musicians who have musical names to them. Um, there's a very well-known uh, church musician professor, and his last name is, is Music. He, he teaches at Baylor University. I'm thinking, oh, that's made up. That's not really his name. But no, his last name really is Music. Um, and you, you run into cases like that where your name actually fits who you are. There, there's a few pastors also whom, when you hear the last name, it's like, it's, it's perfect for that profession, <laughs> yes. I won't call them out now because then everybody will know and be able to think of that that particular pastor. But yeah, it is interesting how those align sometimes. The um, the message of this hymn that he wrote is he, he intended it to be a summary of the entire Epiphany season. And when we think about the Epiphany season, we think of a number of events that happen in the Epiphany season. It kicks off, of course, with the arrival of the Magi on that first week, Epiphany itself. And then we have the numbered Sundays afterwards, Epiphany 2, 3, 4, 5, as many as 6. He wrote this for the last Sunday of that season, intending it to be kind of a, a summary or reflection back upon the season of the different things that we've heard. So if you go through the different stanzas, you realize, oh, there, there are those things contained in these different stanzas. Beginning with stanza one, um, manifested by the star to the sages from afar. Well, obviously we're talking about the arrival of, of the wise men there to Bethlehem. Um, in stanza two, manifested Jordan's stream. Well, what feast follows Epiphany? Um, most years we observe it here, but there's some years because of the way the calendar falls that maybe we don't, but it's the baptism of our Lord. It's, it's often treated as that Sunday that immediately follows Epiphany. 
So there we have the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. That's, that's the reference that's uh, uh, intended right there. Uh, continuing on in that stanza, manifested Jordan's stream, prophet, priest, and king supreme. So this is meant, the, the whole epiphany season is kind of meant to tell us, well, who is, who is Jesus? What, what is he all about? What is, what is the substance of, of Jesus now that he's arrived? And it's this revealing of all these things, which is kind of what the words epiphany, well, epiphany means a, a realization or a coming to a, an understanding of something. And this song is very interesting in that it, it relies very heavily on the word manifest. If you look at it, manifest is, is it's all over this, this hymn. It's everywhere. You can't get away from it. And that means something that's, uh, again, not readily apparent, but all of a sudden reveals itself. And um, he makes very ample use of this. And it's, it's a good thing that we have this hymn in English, or that it was originally composed in English, because that's very key to the poetry of it, that the word manifest is woven in throughout. If you were to translate it into, the, into a different language, it may not work that well. You'd, you'd be destroying the whole thing. So we're fortunate that this was written in English originally, did not need to be translated. Now, when this hymn was included in some of our older hymnals, in the TLH, the hymnal from uh, 1941 that a lot of, a lot of uh, you are probably familiar with or grew up with, um, it has much the same text as it appears here in our Lutheran service books. But in LW, uh, that is Lutheran worship that came out in 1982, they made the change in the end refrain, uh, anthems be to the address, God and flesh made manifest. They went with that for the reasons of inclusive language. A lot of hymn texts were changed for the reason of inclusive language. They thought man, man was too, uh, too specific, uh, but it's Jesus in the flesh. But when you think about it, man and manifest, it's part of the poetry. You want to go back to that. You want to restore it. And I think that's one of the gifts that the hymnal editors of our current hymnal have given us is they really took a, look, a, a very careful look at some of those changes that were made in the 1970s. And they, and they realized, you know, I think some of the poetry has been compromised by doing this. Let's go back to the original poetry. Um, they may have even substituted you for thee in that in uh, in that line as well. I don't I don't recall exactly, but um, they restored a lot of the these and thys where uh, for reasons of poetry or maybe because perhaps people memorized it with the these and the thys that it was worth putting them back in. So this one by and large has been restored to the older original language. You will appreciate this, Vicar. One of uh, Wordsworth's other uh, contributions, uh, in addition to writing hymns, was he wrote a two-volume Bible commentary, which is a, that's a considerable achievement when you think about it, to write a, a Bible commentary with the emphasis that Scripture interprets Scripture. Well, um, I think that's, that's very much a key to the way we talk about uh, how do we understand Scripture? And I think certainly the way it's, it's taught at the seminary, am I correct? Yes, yes. And one of, the, one of the things I found most useful and underused before going to the seminary were the, um, the passages 
that are parallels or references to any particular passage that you're reading in Scripture. So as you're reading it, there'll be a number of footnotes with cross-references, and those cross-references can be incredibly helpful. So I could see having that, that emphasis in a Bible commentary mm -hmm. being very helpful instead of just, you know, having the little, the little um, cross-references and having to look them up each time. Are you speaking about the um, uh, materials that are like the study Bibles that are published or something that's even more extensive than that? Um, I'm thinking of uh, some of the study Bibles, but doesn't even have to be as extensive as a study Bible. But um, any Bible that'll have the, the cross-references, there'll be a, maybe something that inside, if it's broken up into two columns, in the middle, there'll be oftentimes little references for each verse mm -hmm. of what this recalls or calls to mind in someone's um, would call to mind when reading that passage. Maybe it would be an Old Testament quote, maybe it would be uh, another passage throughout um, Matthew or the book, whatever book you're reading that shines more light into the text, but yeah, it does not have to be a study Bible. Yeah, I, I have found, I have, I have now two, two different editions of the study Bible. Um, the older CPH one that was based on uh, the NIV translation, and then I, we, have, we have a copy of the one that's the newer one that's based on ESV, the English Standard Version, which is now what the, the hymnal relies on. And um, what I really appreciated in both of them is, is the footnotes and the comments, the, the references like that, that help you put these pieces together. And they really completely did uh, the, the, those study Bibles so that I could actually open up both of them and get new information out of both. They so extensively rewrote them that I think is very valuable. So if you could put your hands on, on one or both of those, I, I find those are, those are great for, for your own personal study. Even seminarian students still use those. So yeah. they're, they're wonderful resources, especially the new one I found very, very helpful. And, and to your point um, on having scripture interpret scripture, that is incredibly helpful, especially for the more obscure passages, passages that you read and it's, you kind of wonder, you know, how do I understand this? Well, you never want to jump to theological conclusions just based off of one more obscure passage, but rather you go to other parts of scripture to help inform how you are to read that more obscure part. So it, you, you definitely go want to use the clearer parts of Scripture to help interpret the less clear parts of Scripture. And, and as, a, um, as a theologian, uh, Wordsworth, I think, certainly was very sensitive to that and the value to that because I think uh, any theologian would be kind of weary of maybe ideas that appear to be new, that, that appear on the landscape, and you wonder, well, where does that come from? Is it really scriptural, or is it something that maybe the culture is maybe influencing our understanding of a certain passage? Um, so we always have to keep our guard up a little bit that we are, we are interpreting it uh, in that way. And I think uh, that was a very, very worthwhile contribution of Wordsworth in addition to the, to the hymns that he wrote. The, um, uh, oh, the, the, um, the other uh, stanzas of this hymn, we, I, I didn't, I think, finish the summary of that, uh, 
for the different weeks of Epiphany, uh, stanza three makes reference to uh, manifest and making whole the palsy limbs and fainting soul. Throughout the Epiphany season, we hear uh, these episodes of Jesus' ministry in his life, of healing, of casting out spirits. And so depending on what uh, year of readings we're in, it, it highlights different uh, um, works that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. Um, one thing I also passed by rather quickly there, and it only appears in, in the A series of readings, is the wedding at Cana. And um, unfortunately, that doesn't appear in our, in our readings every year, but that is Jesus' first miracle. And so that's mentioned here already in stanza two. Um, then when we get to stanzas four and five of this hymn, it takes a different turn. It talks about the sun and the moon shall darken be, stars shall fall, the heavens shall flee. It talks about Christ coming again, and as you mentioned before, this idea of the new creation. And so it's going way forward, way past the Epiphany season, that this, that this whole uh, revelation of Jesus is building to that, is building to this new creation. And stanza five kind of summarizes um, what this all means for us. Grant us, Lord, to see present in thy holy word. Grant us to imitate you as pure and as pure thou art. Um, the whole meaning of the epiphany season and, and what this revelation means for us. The music for this hymn appears twice in our hymnal, and um, you will recognize the melody as being one that we also sing during the Thanksgiving season, and that is um, um, Come Ye Thankful People Come. So if you know that hymn, that's the other use of this melody in the hymnal. So maybe when you hear this melody, you think, oh, what season does that belong in? Does that belong in Epiphany or does it belong in, in Thanksgiving? Well, we have, the, have had the tradition a long time in our hymnals of using this melody for, for those two texts. It was written by George Elvey, who had a very, I think, a very fortunate um, history and in that uh, after his early musical training, he was able to get the job of being the organist and choir master at St. George's uh, Chapel, which is at Windsor Castle. Um, I don't know if you if you followed things with uh, the, the royals, the British royalty in Windsor Castle, but Windsor Castle is that, is that church, is that chapel that's right on that same compound, that area there. And when um, Prince Philip died and then and indeed uh, Queen Elizabeth II, their funerals were held in that chapel because it's right there on the grounds of, of Windsor Castle. And um, it's, it's not Westminster Abbey, which is the, the larger church, which is, which is away from that same location, but it, it kind of functions like their private chapel that's right there next to Windsor mm -hmm. Castle. And, and they are buried right there. And the composer, George Elvey, because he had served there for uh, 47 years, so he began serving there at the, at the young age of 19. It's quite a prestigious position to begin serving right there. But he served there for 47 years and for his dedicated service was rewarded by also being buried right there at St. George's Chapel. Wow. And um, of the two 
uh, hymns. He, he wrote a lot of church music, but of the two hymn tunes and church music that have survived and been carried forward into our hymnal, we have this melody for songs of thankfulness and praise, which in the name of the tune is named after the chapel, St. George's Windsor, which is not unusual that we have a, a hymn tune that's named after a place name. That's, that's rather common, uh, for, for, especially for English, uh, ones from English sources. The other tune that we have in our hymnal that's very recognizable is known as Diademata, which is the, the tune for Crown Him With Many Crowns. Mm. So two very famous mid-19th century English hymns that I think we probably could not imagine doing without because there's just such well-known hymns um, across all of, of Christendom. They're, they're used very frequently in that way. For today, um, why don't we sing, uh, we'll sing the entire hymn on this Sunday, but why don't we sing stanzas one and five? Songs of thankfulness and praise, Jesus Lord, to Thee we raise, manifested by the star to the sages from afar. Branch of royal David's stem, in Thy birth at Bethlehem, anthems be to Thee addressed. God in man made manifest. Grant us grace to see thee, Lord, present in thy holy word. Grace to imitate thee now, and be pure as pure art thou, that we might become like thee, at thy great epiphany, and may praise thee ever bless, God in man made manifest. And I don't know if you noticed this while we were, while we were singing through it, but yeah, it seems like every line has the word manifest in it somewhere. And in that final line um, of the first three stanzas, the first three ref, uh, refrains of those first three stanzas are all identical. Anthems be to the address God and man made manifest. So certainly putting the focus of our response to this redemption and epiphany back on the praise and glorification of, uh, of God. Um, just, a, I think, a, a very well-written hymn, and I think uh, uh, it, it, it tends to be one of our favorites for this season. Yeah. And really, so the, I, I love the repetition, God and man made manifest mm -hmm. over and over again. It really encapsulates what Epiphany season is all about. God revealing himself through Jesus. Who right. is and, this child? And every stanza ends with that same phrase. Yes, God and man made manifest. Yeah, so it really drives home the point. Mm -hmm. All right, we will continue with the litany. Oh, Lord. Have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power 
and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scripture to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by patient and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.